Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I'm joined today by Jeff Bernier, financial advisor and author of the new book, The Money and Meaning Journey. Uh, Jeff is also a Georgia Bulldogs fan, and so congratulations are in order to him. Welcome to the show. Here we go. I'll try not to bark here uh, to to your audience, but no, we're we're enjoying the journey. So I was uh, I'm an Auburn fan, like we like we talked about. Um, you know, I didn't go to Auburn, but being being from Alabama, you have to choose a side, or you're a, you're a side <laughs> at first. In in my case, and yeah. so you know I'm I, an Auburn fan, and I went to the SEC championship game when it was Auburn and Georgia four or five years ago. I can't remember what it was, and Georgia just destroyed us, but. Riding, riding the train to the championship game, wearing my orange and blue, surrounded by people wearing uh, red and black, barking at me, was an experience I'd like to forget. But <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. We 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 are uh, we, we are pretty passionate about about our football at Georgia these days. Yeah, congratulations to the dogs. Good stuff, Jeff. The book is fantastic. It was great to see some of the ideas that run through the fiber of how you run your business make their way into this new book. I've known you for a few years. I know how you uh, treat your clients, how you go to work, and it's great to see you put some of this stuff down on paper. So I I liked uh, a part early in the book, you kind of tell on yourself a little bit. You know, you talk about earlier in in your career, you refer to yourself as an empty suit. Uh, You accuse yourself of sort of faking it. And you go on to encourage advisors to act more authentically to encourage their clients in more holistic ways. What led you to act inauthentically in the first place? And what snapped you out of that inauthenticity? Yeah. So well, again, Daniel, thanks for having me on. And um, just for your listener to know, you know, when I wrote this book, it was really just an amalgamation of experiences that I've had with clients and resources that I've been fortunate to be exposed to in my 36 years, I believe, uh, doing this practice. So there are not a lot of original ideas, and, and certainly Daniel's fingerprints are in several parts of this book. So we can we can actually talk about that if we want at some point. But anyway, back to your question. You know, I think as a young person getting out of college and starting a career, we have this conception about what it takes to be a success. And in my case, uh, I mean, I... I had this image of what success looked like in the financial services industry. And it's a, it's a, it's a time that's filled with peril. And the reason it's filled with peril is the culture that you end up in can have a huge impact on the way that you view the world early in your career, at least in my case, early in my career. And so I thought that I had to be this super sophisticated finance guy you know, 22 year old right out of college, sort of faking that I had this expertise and knowledge trying to advise people who were much older than me. And what happens, I, at least in my case, is I saw success as it was defined by our industry at the time. 
and and more importantly at the firm I was with. And at that time, success meant that you just made a lot of money and you were a big quote producer. And so I just put on I just put on the uniform or the costume, I guess is what I said in the book. And I tried to emulate the quote big producers because in the in the financial services industries, certainly at that time, it was really all about production. You know, if you were producing at a high level in terms of commissions or sales or revenue, you were held up as the the, the leader, and it had nothing to do with fi- uh, client outcomes. I mean, client outcomes were not even thought about. It was really about creating value for the firm, and I just bought into it. I took it hook, line, and sinker, and and so part of it was just my immaturity and lack of grounding. Now, I've been blessed. I was raised uh, by great parents, and I had some really good spiritual grounding and about what really mattered in life. But, you know, you come to Atlanta from from Athens, as I just mentioned, and, and, and I want to be part, I want to be a success. And so a lot of it, Daniel, was just me uh, faking it to try to fit into the culture that I was in to try to be a, a worldly success. So that was really, I think, part of the problem is I I had this image of what success was and it was really pretty shallow. And unfortunately, again, because of my uh, the way my parents raised me, I, I mean, I had some fundamental beliefs that I think were solid, but it was easy to get sucked into the culture. And that's that's the danger, I think, uh, with a young person starting a career um, where you are matters a lot and who you who you align yourself with as mentor. So you got to be really, really discerning about that. So that was, I think, the first part of your question about uh, about what what got me into it. Um, the second part, I think, was about how I, how did I evolve out and yeah, I become. Yeah, I don't think it was a snapping out. I I mean, I don't. Uh, Richard Rohr in his um, some of his writing in one of his great books called Falling Upward, he talks about you know there's not a direct flight from the first half of life to the second half of life. I mean, you've got to just go through some experiences, I think. You've got to have some challenges or spiritual awakening or reflection or or you walk side by side with someone who's going through one of those things. So I don't think there's a magic pill that can transform who you are and what you believe and how you act overnight. In my case, I think it was a combination of life experiences, challenges, and maturity. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess for a young advisor, I, I think the shortcut could be just being very discerning about who you align yourself with so you could maybe do it a lot quicker that, that I did. So I don't know that I snapped out. I think it was a I think it was a journey through experiences and spiritual uh, uh, awakening, I guess, and, and maturity in, in, in both professionally and and personally, so I don't, I don't think. And by the way, I mean, as I sit here today, and I'm, I'm, I'm flattered that you invite me to be on your show. And you know, part of me is wanting me to be. I mean, I'm kind of, I kind of put the uniform on this morning. So okay, I want to do. So I mean, this is an ongoing journey. I don't think. I mean, I think we continue to try to continue to be who we were uniquely created to be, and not put on the uniform every single day. So I'm, I'm still working at it. I guess I would say. Yeah, I think I think that's great perspective. You know, I'm 43, and my dad, um, my dad got his job as an advisor the day, literally the day I was born. And you know, I've seen as a as a child, and then you know, watching my dad's career over the years, I've seen the industry change. 
Like, I mean, I, I very much remember those sort of Gordon Gecko, you know, days of the of the early eighties and right. buying buying a fast car and wearing the right suit. Not not that my not that my dad not that my dad, who is the ultimate contrarian, was ever into any of those things. But <laughs> I saw I saw his peers engaging in that, and I, I witnessed that culture. And then I've seen the change, which I think is a really positive change that we'll talk about. So a, a question for you, keeping this same vein, Jeff, that's your internal experience of how you've changed. How is it different as a client when you've got an advisor who is an empty suit, top producer, kind of focused person versus a more holistic, more mature financial advisor? What? How does the client experience look different from, from one time to the next? Well, I, I think probably the the most important part is the the depth of interest in other people um in you know i i heard from a coach many years ago it's it's more important to be interested than interesting so you know when you're starting out and you're and you're trying to sort of fake it till you make it it's all about how do you impress other people and make sure they they get the persona that you're trying to put out and it's really a mindset shift where now you're you're just empty and it's the questions that you ask and generally caring. I mean, you generally care about the people, not the outcomes. Because I think in the first phase that I discussed where you're sort of faking it, you're really transactional and outcome focused. Mm-hmm. Where when your heart's in the right place, where you just want to serve you're not really that concerned about the outcome. So I think the questions that you ask, the depth of understanding and caring for the individual and not worrying about the outcome. So um, not worrying about if they hire me to be the advisor, if I give them advice that they don't don't like, but in my heart of hearts, I think it's the truth, not worrying about it. I mean, it's, it's okay. It's there's, look, there's plenty of people that need what we do. I don't have to convince anybody of anything. The most important thing I need to do is understand who they are, what they care about, who they love, what they're trying to accomplish, and see if we're a fit. You know, if we have the resources to help them move in the direction of their goals and not make it so much about convincing them who we are. It's really not about us. I mean, I I know early on in my career, we had all, you know, we had our, our ego wall, you know, with all the credentials and all, and we got rid of all of that. Uh, because we don't, it's not about us, it's about them. So I think from the client perspective, um, I'm hoping that the questions that we ask and a sense of caring about them as an individual and more interested in, are we the right firm? Do we have the right, do we have a philosophy that's in alignment with your, you know, with the prospective client or the new or the client and not worry so much about outcomes in yeah. terms of, of, of how it affects me or our firm. And you know some sales quota, uh, for instance. Yeah, it's like who's who's centered, right? Like who's the center of the conversation? Is it your, your ego needs, or is it the client and and what's best for them? So, Jeff, one of the things you know we've t- we've touched a little, just ever so briefly on your professional journey here. One of the things that I love is that throughout the book, you sort of you you, you talk a lot about the hero's journey and and you you frame the reader as the hero right again that sort of decentering of, of of you and you're encouraging people to take this hero's journey of combining money and meaning 
Now, when we're going to take this metaphor way too far. So like when, when undertaking a journey of any sort, I think it's wise to be aware of potential pitfalls and, you know, right. know what obstacles might, might come across your path. And I wonder what obstacles you see. You've, I'm, I'm confident by now, advised hundreds of people over your career. When you look back at these people's lives, what are the most common impediments to creating a meaningful money life? And I don't mean like not enough insurance or under diversification. I'm talking about specifically on sort of the higher order, meaningful money life. Where do people go wrong? Yeah. I, so, you know, back to your um, skipping over the challenges that my hero in the books um, faces today. You know, social security challenges and healthcare challenges and lower rates of return and all that. I so so those are the those are the tangible technical things that we have to address in the planning. But in terms of our inability to go deeper with what really matters, I mean that is a challenge. And so I I think the I think the roadblock is oftentimes very similar to the young advisors challenge is the world. And I mean, we all play the comparison game. I mean, we, we we judge success or failure based on either the world's view or our neighbors as opposed. And so I think part of the challenge is we just have this mindset of what will make us happy. And oftentimes, and I know you wrote a lot about this in some of your material on the hedonic treadmill yeah. about the things that we think are going to make us happy, get us to a certain level. And it doesn't take long for that no longer to make us happy. And then we've got to go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So I think one of the major hurdles is we just don't take the time to go internal and 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 don't do we don't we we don't go we don't do the personal introspection or the work to kind of figure out what really matters. And that's part of what I try to do in the middle part of the book is have some workshop type activities. And I just scratched the surface on some of this. There are a lot of there are a lot of resources that do a lot better job than I probably did in the book. But I think part of it is we just get busy and we just we just get, you know, we just, you know, we just get in the we're a fish in the school and we just stay in the school. And we never pull out of the school and figure out, do I really want to be in this school of fish or do I want to be in a different one? Because we just get sucked in because of society and social comparison and all of those kinds of things. Uh, you know, I know, I know Albert Brooks, I think at Harvard has written some really good stuff about, you know, um, you know, what you want versus what you have. And uh, it, but we don't do that. We just, we just get on the treadmill and we just start going without taking space. And that's why I talked about before there was no direct path from the first half to the second half. Oftentimes there's a tragedy or a challenge. Oftentimes that's what it takes to go internal, you know, the death of a child or a divorce or loss of a job or a challenge that makes you for the first time in your life really ask those deeper questions. So I think the I think the hurdle is we don't take the time to ask the deeper questions. And I don't think that's um I try not to be too judgmental on that because I don't I don't I don't either. I mean I'm I'm in the middle of life too. So I think we have to just create some intentionality about taking the time to really thinking deeper about what really matters, not what our neighbor or our parents or our spouse even thinks 
is is really what this is about in terms of what what really gives us meaning. What really is our why? Finding our why is uh, Simon Sinek talks about in his in his work. So there's uh, some research I came across this week that I thought was just fascinating, and it shows how money can be such a trap. They looked at intrinsic motivation in first-year law students. And so not surprisingly, uh, the first-year law students with the highest intrinsic motivation, by and large, went on to be some of the most successful standout students in their class. Okay. So as a successful law school graduate, you get a good job, you make good money, all of these things. And what they found is that sort of this intrinsic motivation led to great performance, which led to great jobs, which then led to low satisfaction mm. because folks got sort of trapped in this cycle of consumption and ascendancy. Like they right. stopped doing law because they loved it. They got partner tracked. They got financially tracked. And it was this sort of perverse thing where their initial sort of like pure love of the law got perverted into this chase for money. And there's a hundred examples like this that I could cite where money is, you know, not good or evil per se, but the pursuit of money to the exclusion of all else right. is such a drag. And you really just have to do that work and constantly reevaluate because the world, like you're saying, though everything outside of us is telling us that money is it. Like money is how you keep right. Forward. Right, sure of a good life, and we got to keep keep checking and keep checking. So let's, yeah. let's let's stay on this. You know, on page forty four, you you quote Christopher Lash and in, in his reference to our culture of narcissism. Right, and you write unable or unwilling to identify and devote themselves to a cause larger than their egotistical gratifications, they soon grow, soon grow dissatisfied and unhappy. And you talk about the importance of sort of breaking this culture of solipsism, breaking this culture of narcissism and self-focus and helping create an other focus. Right. This is um, a core tenet of most major spiritual traditions right. is this, you know, the, the happiness research suggests it, right? You know, right. Yeah, the, the positive psychology research suggests it. You know, it's one of the five pillars of happiness and all the positive psychology research. Right. We get people to take this other focus. And as a corollary to that, is it the advisor's job to say like, hey, you should really go volunteer or, you know, you you should give money away or like you should you should get off your grind a little bit and really get outside of yourself. Yeah, I well, to. I think to the for, to the first question on, or at least the first point of this, I mean, the, I quoted a couple of studies too on the gratitude, right? How important gratitude is, and at at some level, it's really just about being grateful. I mean, we're we're incredibly blessed. Um, most of us are incredibly blessed when you compare your circumstances to most of the world. But as I but if I but as I, if I can, I mean, if I go to my study group meeting and I meet an advisor who's got a firm who's much bigger than mine and much more profitable than mine. And, uh, you know, it's quoted in all the major books. I mean, it's easy for me to compare to that. And I can get really, really, you know, uh, judging, you know, self-judging. So I think you've got to know what you're optimizing for. I mean, what is it that you're optimizing 
for. And I think once you figure out what you're optimizing for in your own, in your own interest, I mean, this is, I mean, this is, this is kind of a paradox for you to be happier, um, according to the research and my own personal experience, um, you have to be either generous or grateful or, and as you quote stated, other focused, you know, and in, and in the book, you know, in the, in the, the, the book you quoted, I mean, that was written many, many years ago. It wasn't thinking about, you know, anybody that anybody in particular. And so the, I think the theme is, um, in our own best interest, we should, we should be generous. I mean, it's because you're, because, because again, we tend to be happier when we're generous, we tend to be happier when we're more thankful. But I don't know the answer. I mean, I don't have any insights other than the types of work that you do in, in your in your previous life counseling um, in helping people kind of figure out how to be more other focused. Other than from my standpoint, it's biblical, it's spiritual, it's it's I you know I think I'm called, and you know there's something I think about called the paradox principle, which basically says you die to self. As you as you die to self, you you become more fulfilled. So I don't I don't really have a great answer for how to how to correct it in my life or anyone else's. But I do think an advisor should ask hard questions. You don't answer them. I mean, it's not your job to answer the question. But uh, I think encouragement and asking good questions related to how much is enough is absolutely something that we can do to add value to the people that we serve because we want them to have a fulfilling, meaningful life. I mean, uh, so if you, if you really care about your client, I think you certainly have permission to ask insightful, maybe difficult questions for them to answer. Now you don't have to put them on the couch and spend hours and hours in psychotherapy because you're not qualified. At least I'm not qualified, uh, but you can tee up really good questions, I think, and give them resources in my, in my view. Yeah, I think the role of an advisor is ever expanding and becoming ever more holistic. And I think that you're going to see a lot more of this. And I mean, frankly, it's not this woo-woo thing. It's like it's in the research. I mean, you could say, look, the research shows like, here I am. I'm your advisor. I'm an expert on all things financial. And part of financial wellness is being charitable and being great. I mean, something like counting your blessings, something like encouraging someone to be philanthropic, None of these things are like this left field consideration. This is all things that you can do to to improve your clients' lives. And I, I think we're gonna see more and more about that. You know, while while we're on the uh happiness literature, you know, we talked about these sort of five pillars of happiness. One of them is this other focus, this this working for something bigger than yourself. Uh, another one of them is is hard work. You know, I think that's one that's surprising to to some people is that hard work is a part of happiness because I think in in some of our sort of idealized notions of happiness, we're just sort of relaxing. But the but the research shows that hard work is a big piece of it. And I love to quote in your book, you're you're quoting a gerontologist from the Mayo Clinic who said that a life of total ease is two steps removed from a life of total disease. The first step is that retirees get bored. The second step is that they grow pessimistic and finally they get ill. So I want you to speak to the role of work in creating a meaningful money journey. And then 
you know, you had some uh, research in the book that was interesting about physical well-being and work. So you could share some of that or, or share how you work with retirees in your practice to make sure that this piece of their wellness isn't falling off. Yeah, I I think uh, so. The quote that you that you pulled out from the book, I actually got from Mitch Anthony. Uh, so Mitch Anthony, and he he has probably the best definition I've ever heard for work, and he defines work as anything that creates value for others and gives meaning to you. Hmm. So he defined work as anything that creates value for others and meaning for you. And so I think we maybe we just need a different definition of work. I don't, so by that definition, it doesn't necessarily say you get a paycheck. It doesn't say you're a W-2 employee. Uh, it doesn't say you, you you show up nine to five every day. It's you're creating value for others and it's meaningful for you. Now, uh, you know, Rabbi Daniel, uh, Daniel Lampin, uh, you know, calls compensation, he calls money certificates of appreciation. <laughs> and so we do get rewarded financially for serving. I mean, it's, so it's, so it is a virtual circle. I mean, as you serve, you're rewarded, I think, either spiritually or financially. But I I think part of it is not necessarily just this, even, even Mitch Anthony's definition for work. I think it's purpose. I I think the key is purpose. Do you have purpose? And for many of us, we find purpose in, in our work, uh, in, in what the world calls work, I guess, not Mitch Anthony's definition of work. So we find purpose in solving problems and creating. And so work is, I think work is incredibly important. And, you know, and, and that's, you know, in retirement, traditional retirement's also probably not biblical. I mean, if we, if we want to get back to some of the text of our, of our faith backgrounds, I mean, we are called to be productive and to continue to, 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 uh, you know, to, to grow and to build things and to serve. Um, but not only that, I mean, in the research, as, as you just mentioned, you know, work, I mean, re- traditional retirement can be bad for your health. I mean, I mentioned in the very first chapter of the book, my dad told me one of the three worst days of his life was the day he retired, which is really sad in, in one respect. Now he's, he's, he's rallied in, in his, in his retirement. And I'm, I'm happy about that, but he, he struggled with, with retirement because we get so much meaning from, from our work, um, if, if it's purposeful. I mean, if it's work that, that does give us something and we lose something. But the research that you were talking about was a, was a paper that was done back in 2006 called The Effects of Retirement on Physical and Mental, uh, Mental Health Outcomes from uh, three uh, professors at, at, at Georgia State, Bentley College, um, and I'm not sure what the, what the third one was. But the first thing they, they say in the research is a lot of the studies that have been done are all over the board mm-hmm. in whether retirement improves health or makes health. So you've got to normalize for so many factors mm-hmm. because oftentimes people retire because they're already in bad health, you know, or, or they, or they don't retire because they financially can't retire or they need health. Insurance. I mean, so there's a lot of factors that they, they have to normalize for and they, and they do that in the study. And, but when they, when they normalize for a lot of those factors, what they found is that retirement did for people that did not that retirement was a choice uh there was a five to sixteen percent decrease in mobility over time more than those that that didn't five to six percent increase in illness and six uh, to nine percent decrease in mental health and so there is so according to their data there's some tangible uh challenges with retirement if you don't replace 
some of the things that work gives you. And a large part of that was, was social interaction. And I, th- I think that speaks to, you know, the challenge where we've gone through now with the pandemic. And, you know, Zoom meetings are great. We don't have to commute. But we're losing something that work used to give us in terms of our social networks and relationships. So, and, and, and interestingly, in the study, you know, people that were married and retired fared better than those that didn't, primarily because they had a partner, a social you know, so yeah, you know, it was a. It, I'm sure a lot more work has been done since this paper on that on those facts. But there is some real data around uh, potential challenges with traditional retirement. Um, you know, working part time improved those percentages significantly. And of course, even if you did leave traditional work, if you had purpose, you had social networks, you you you, you, t- you obviously you took care of your health you know, the habits and the things that you have control over. But I think work is really, is really important. I mean, but again, I think it has to do with purpose as much as it does the work itself. I mean, you've got to have a reason uh, to, you know, to get up every day. You know, I think it's so important to make the broader financial world aware of statistics like this, because again, it, it, it casts a broader light on the kind of advice we need to be giving. I think there's so much focus on the number, right? Like the number, the number, the retirement number. Retirement is this super complex thing that is about far more than whether you'll have enough to sort of fund your lifestyle. And I think for a lot of people who have that squared away, they may think that they're all set and maybe walking into a psychological trap that sort of under-recognizes the place of, of social support and and meaning and purpose and work and uh, recognition and all the things that, that work does give us. And it really is, I think, on the advisor to make someone aware of that because I think retirement is just presented as this unmitigated good in a lot of respects. It's like, well, great, now we're just going to hit the links and, you know, no dumb boss to bug me or, you know, all these things. It's a lot more complicated than that. And I think it's important and I think it's incumbent upon advisors to recognize that and bring that research into the conversation. Right. Yeah. I, I, I just, just heard someone recently that did some research too about it. So it's, oftentimes what we want is freedom and discretionary time. Yeah. So it's not that we necessarily want to leave, quote, work. We want more freedom and more discretionary time. And it's interesting, those that have more freedom, more autonomy, more agency, if you will, in the type of work uh, and more discretionary time, you know, you could potentially extend your work life if you could put that in. And so, I mean, obviously that's one of the great things about being, you know, an entrepreneur. I mean, we get to design our own, our own, you know, nirvana uh, as an entrepreneur, but even those that, that, that don't, I mean, I'm hoping that the corporate world will, kind of get a little bit more aligned about this in terms of making work more fulfilling in terms of giving some more autonomy and giving more agency to the to the employees because I think that can go a long way for making people be able to work longer in jobs that they love and, and are fulfilling but you just burned out I mean you just get burned out yeah I saw a TED talk on a gentleman who did this thing where, you know, he said, look, our, our whole retirement plan has been to whatever, work for 40-ish years and then retire. 
So he took one year of retirement, I think, every six years. Yeah. So you can work for sabbaticals. Yeah. A year off, right? Take work for six years, take a year off. And I thought that was brilliant. Now he was also an entrepreneur. I mean, that's gonna that's he gonna do it. that's gonna have material consequences if you're a W two employee and you're trying to like jump back into the workforce after a year sabbatical every six years. But I think yeah. I think this calls for expansive thinking on like how do we how do we maximize for freedom and autonomy while while still getting those other needs met by work. I think that's good stuff. Yeah, it uh, two things occur to me as you're talking about this is I know. 25 years ago or 20 years ago, I saw Ken Dykewald at AgeWave, organization called AgeWave, and he did some work and he, he said the exact same type of thing as his TED talk is, you know, we used to have an education quarter, we had two work quarters, and then we had a retirement quarter, yeah. you know, sort of looked at the four quarters of a ball game. And the, and the two middle quarters were the traditional work quarter. And he said that the world is changing where we, you know, we take retirement a little bit at a time all through our lives. In a way, so it, it so instead of um, you know it's it's more like this uh, Neapolitan ice cream where you take a little bit a little bit along the way, yeah. and so I I think uh, as we work on our human capital, I mean I love I, I love what uh, Cal Newport coaches young people about. Uh, he wrote the book Deep Work and some other things that are that are really interesting. But he said you know just, just be so good they. They, 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 they have to have you. So you work on your human capital. So you're so valuable to the organization that you can negotiate those types of things. And hopefully, hopefully we'll catch up. But I, but I do, but I do believe the whole idea of purpose and work is, is a big part of, of, uh, of meaning yeah. and whether it's, and whether it's work for a paycheck or just Mitch Anthony's definition of meaningful and creating value for others. So let, let's bring it full circle now, right? We started by talking about your career as an empty suit, sort of a young, insecure guy trying to be a big, uh, a big rainmaker and sort of running sort of the, the cultural playbook of the times. Right. Here in the middle talked about, you know, love and purpose and meaning and, and other focus and, and all the things that are sort of central to your practice now. If someone's listening to this and they don't have an advisor and they're looking for someone who takes this more expansive approach that that can counsel them on on all things financial wellness in addition to sort of their the you know the meat and potatoes of their financial life how does a client sitting across the desk from an advisor they're vetting how do you determine the empty suit from that from that person you want to work with with a more holistic focus? Yeah, that's, that's not an easy question. Uh, it's not an easy question because I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't really want to judge other advisors methodology in the sense that I don't. So I believe most advisors have really good hearts and they care about people and they care about their clients. You know, I don't, I don't have this, uh, I don't have this Hollywood image of, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street is who is who the typical advisor is. The culture can matter, as I mentioned, but I think most advisors come at this uh, generally caring about people and wanting people to meet their goals. However, they just oftentimes we haven't been trained in in how to ask the. the so I think for a prospective client, it's it's almost easier to know what they won't do. I mean, what they what an advisor who is really generally focused on you will not do is, you know, they won't start talking about themselves and all their capabilities and start showing you performance history 
and how great my mousetrap is before they start finding out who you are and what you care about. So I think it's just, it's, uh, and by the way, there, there are many, there are many prospective clients who don't want to go deep on these questions. Yeah. So oftentimes, I mean, when I wrote the book, I mean, I think it's a niche book yeah. because certain people, a lot of people read this book and say, that's not for me. That's too, I want my advisor to make me money and help me get wealthy. And I'm not interested in any of these deeper questions. And that is fine. I mean, it, so the way I look at it is when we ask these questions in the very first meeting, which I kind of model a little bit in the book as an example, I'm not trying to make it uh, suggested it's the only way or it's the best way. It's just our way. But, you know, some people will deselect us based on these early questions that we ask. But if I'm a prospective client or I'm an individual and I want an advisor who wants me to, to live well, not just, um, you know, build wealth, but to live well and well-being and, 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 and freedom and, 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 and meaning, the questions that they ask you in the very first meeting can be a pretty good tell on whether you're dealing with an advisor who's generally interested in who you are and what you care about and what you're trying to accomplish, as opposed to how great we are. And because again, back to the hero's journey, uh, if the advisor positions themselves as the hero, you've probably got a problem. If the advisor's positioning the client as the hero and I need to understand the hero's challenges, you're, you're, you're probably in a pretty good, you're potentially in a pretty good place. I mean, there are other, a lot of other factors, and I talk about some questions to ask advisors in the book that might be might be helpful to the to the audience. But I think that's probably the biggest tell is you, you know are they asking me questions, trying to get to know me and care about me and understand what matters to me before they try to impress me with uh, who they are and what they do and how they do it. Even yeah, that's uh, that's what I've been tasked with at Orion is helping our advisors understand their clients better than any other advisors in the business. So Jeff, well, the book well I'm and I'm encouraged by that, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged by the work that you're doing and some others in terms of helping our industry be better at this, because I think there's a, I think there's a huge need if we can, if we can, if we can do it the right way. Yeah. No, right on. Well, Jeff, congratulations uh, to the dogs. Congratulations. <laughs> on Look, it's a great book. It's the kind of book we need more of. So thank you. If people want to learn more about you, your podcast, your book, where can, where can we find you? Yeah, so a few places. Uh, the book is uh, com. I've got a website for the book that will give you more information. It's available at all the normal online retailers, Amazon and so forth. So you can find the money and meaning journey uh, there. Tandemgrowth.com is our corporate website. If they wanted to check out the firm, there's a link to the podcast there. The podcast is also... The Money and Meaning Show is my podcast. Um, it's available on iTunes and Spotify and all the normal sources as well. And I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and all the normal places as well as is Tandem Growth. So pretty easy to find through those various sources. So thanks for for letting me share that. Absolutely. Jeff, thanks so much. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Daniel. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only 
and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.